Good morning, everyone. Glad that you're here today, and uh, glad the sun is out and the snow is gone. Uh, let's start with a prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for being a glorious God and a majestic God, for creating all this world and the splendor in it with all its complexity, right down to the smallest molecule. We find there is information that is so exquisite and so thorough that it makes us wonder, how did it get there and who designed all of this? And Lord, people of faith come to realize that you are behind it all, and it is so vast and so great and filled with so much wonder that we are still grappling all the years years later to discover all of the truth that you have built into this world. Thank you for putting people here like us and for having a reason and a purpose for why we live. Help us as we begin the next few weeks to uh, probe into this concept of uh, reclaiming and re-identifying and renewing our sense of purpose. I pray that you'll give us clarity about how we are to live, about how we are to treat each other, how we are to respond to you. Thank you for the day that we have here today. Help us to make the most of it. As we look into your word, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand, and even more, that you would use this process to make us a little bit more like Jesus and to make us a little bit more effective in the way that we live day in and day out. Lord, when we come together, we recognize that, that the people in this room and who are watching online are wonderful people, but we all have our flaws too. And so we ask that you will forgive our sins. We stop humbly and we think about this week and how it's gone, and Lord, we bring our confessions to you right now, silently, where we are, as we are. And we thank you for the declaration of the Scriptures that when we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just, and you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that today you will prepare us to live well in this world and to be known as your people. We pray for our country. We pray for the election that's coming up in just a couple of days. And we pray even more for the response to whatever the choice of the nation is and that you will allow us to be a force for good. And after all the debating and all of the, the, the different positions that have been staked out, allow us to come together as a nation and allow those of us who are followers of Christ first to love across the lines and to love well and to be known for the way that we treat people with grace. Allow us to treat others the way that Jesus would and the way that you have treated us. So God, we thank you for giving us this day and this uh, chance to worship together, and we invite you into our lives and into our presence. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. One of my favorite trips that I took with my father-in-law was several years ago when we went to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. There we toured the grounds and the memorials of that great Civil War battlefield. Frank Tagg joined us there, and the three of us climbed around the terrain of strategic movements of that three-day battle, rehearsing the history of each stage of this particular conflict. 
One of the most memorable sights for me at Gettysburg was a hill known as Little Round Top, where a 35-year-old Bowdoin College professor commanded Maine's 20th Regiment as they formed the last line of defense on that hill. His name was Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, and he was given orders to hold the line on Little Round Top, quote, at all hazards. Today that seems like a, an awkward phrase, but it meant a whole lot back then. After fighting back desperate uphill advances from the Confederate Army, Chamberlain knew that the entire battle and perhaps even the war was at stake if the Confederate soldiers outflanked his men on that hill. After several charges by the Confederates, the 20th Maine was nearly out of ammunition, so Chamberlain ordered a bayonet charge. His exhausted men fixed their bayonets on the end of their rifles and they charged down the hill directly into the path of the enemy and they shut down the final Confederate assault. Historians have, noticed, have noted that Little Round Top was a small place in a larger battle. But if Maine's 20th Regiment had, not, had been outflanked, the Battle of Gettysburg and very likely the entire Civil War would have swung the other way and reached a different conclusion. Chamberlain understood the meaning of that phrase at all hazards. He knew that it meant at all costs. Even if it costs your life, this is how you were to follow through. And because of that action, Chamberlain later became known as the hero of Little Round Top and was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor some 30 years later. Here's the point that I'm driving at. Great victories are won when ordinary people who are caught up in a cause that is greater than themselves understand the significance of their orders. It is in that light that I invite you to examine with me two of the most important directives that come from the lips of Jesus. And over the next five Sundays, we are going to take a closer look at these two statements from Jesus that are known as the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. So good morning. Once again, I'm glad to stand with you today and with all of those of you who are in the worship center and those of you who are with us online today. Today we're beginning a series that we're calling Reclaim Your Purpose. Whether you understand it or realize this or not, God has a purpose for your life as an individual and he has a purpose for us as a congregation as well. And part one of this series is today's message, our first priority. Now let me explain some of the reasons for this series as we begin. We are, first, we are looking at five principles that come from the heart of Jesus. So we are going back and we are rehearsing well-known to many and well-loved statements of Scripture that come directly from Jesus and that speak to the values that were on his heart. How do we know that? Well, in, in verse 38 of Matthew 22, Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment. He's the one who identifies it that way. And then he says, and the second is like it. So we're also going to look at the second greatest commandment. These principles are great because Jesus called them great, and these five principles represent the five purposes that are listed in Scripture for every Christ follower. And these five purposes unite us as a church. Here's the second reason. Vision leaks. Back in the Psalms, we read, where there is no vision, the people perish. The simple reality is that unless vision is repeated and clarified every so often, even faithful people lose sight and lose energy. Let me tell you a story of what happens when the church loses sight of that vision. Just around the corner from this campus, there used to be a small church. 
And several years ago, there was an elderly man from that church who used to occasionally attend North River back in our warehouse days. He would stand in the back and quietly slip out before the end of the service. One Sunday, I caught up to him, and I asked him why he did that, why he would stand in the back and then quietly slip out so that he wouldn't be identified before the service was over. He told me that he had been part of that church around the corner for many years. And then he added this kind of mournful thought. He said, I'm going down with the ship, but I come here every once in a while to remember. I see all the people here, the young families. I can sense the energy, and I know that this is what church is supposed to be like. Now, that church today no longer exists. He was part of a a handful of people, maybe seven or eight, who are keeping it going at that point. On one hand, I want to credit that small group of people for donating their building to the Sowing Seeds Project, which does a lot of good work in the community. I'm glad that Sowing Seeds exists. But that church also stands as a warning. If a church loses its vision, it will eventually cease to exist. Vision leaks. It's hard to hold on to it unless we focus on it from time to time, and so we need need to be reminded. Here's the third reason for this series. We're in a high-stakes venture. Jesus is the one who said in Matthew 16, and on this rock I will build my church. But notice what he said at the end of that verse, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Some of the older translations read this way, and the gates of hell will not triumph against it. Folks, we're in a high-stakes venture in the church. The Christian church was launched to further Jesus' redemptive mission in the world, And at times it seems obvious that the very gates of hell are aligned against it. This makes the mission of the church harder and always in a a bit of of turmoil or or controversy. The church is a high-stakes venture because it stands against all of that, that which opposes God. Fourth, it is noteworthy when someone finds their purpose. There are lots of people who walk around with life aimlessly wondering why on earth are we here and confused about that but when we find somebody or discover somebody or meet somebody who has a clear handle on their purpose it is life-giving it is invigorating here's one of those people that we find in scripture Acts chapter 13 verse 36 here Luke writes for when David had served God's purpose in his own generation he fell asleep so Luke is writing about King David who lived somewhere about uh, a thousand years before his time, and he says that David served God's purpose. This is a powerful statement. It's not saying that David lived a perfect life, because he didn't. And not all the kings ended well in the history of Israel. This doesn't mean that, that everything about David's life should be emulated, but he came to understand God's primary purpose for his life and for his generation, and he embraced that. And he built a kingdom that would last for generations. Notice that this was God's purpose for David. You and I don't choose our purpose. God chooses that for us. And he calls us at times to take up places, to take up roles in this world where we go forward fulfilling the reason that God has put us in this place to begin with. Solomon wrote in Psalm 19, 21, Solomon is the son of David. Many are the plans in a man's heart, or a woman's heart for that matter, if we begin be inclusive, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. 
What Solomon was writing was we can have our own plans and we can set our own uh, chart for the future, but God's purpose ultimately prevails in this world. Remember, our topic this morning is our first priority. And the first priority that we have is related to the first understanding of God's purpose for our lives. And it has to do with the way that we respond to him in worship. Here's the big idea that I want to share with you this morning. So if you're ready to tune out, just think about this one sentence. I can love God by giving him my attention, my affection, and by the way I do my work for him. We'll come back to that. Our first priority is all about worship. Jesus is the one who establishes loving God as our first priority. We find this here in Matthew chapter 22 in the passage that Les read a few minutes ago. Jesus has asked a question, which is the greatest of all the commandments? He's asked this question by somebody who's an expert in Old Testament law, and he immediately answers. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus was drawing on something that the people of God had known for centuries, but they hadn't focused on as a a vision or as a purpose that was continually repeated. This was not something that Jesus made up on the spot. As he often did, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. And he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now it's interesting because Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 is the beginning of something known as the Shema. The Shema is is, uh, given that title because of the first word in the sentence in Hebrew, Shema O Israel, Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which means, Hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It reads this way in English, Hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So Jesus, in effect, was appealing to the familiar, something that would have been repeated in every synagogue of that time, and for that matter, every Saturday in every synagogue or temple around our country, that passage is quoted again today, but it becomes so familiar that people stopped thinking about what it really was calling them to. People of God were instructed to teach these principles of God, these purposes and priorities of God, to their children and to their children's children, to to talk about them wherever they went throughout the day. By calling worship the first and greatest commandment, Jesus was letting us know that God comes first and that our first and primary purpose in life is to respond to the Creator who's given us all the opportunities that we have and all the beauty and splendor we have and even life itself and to praise Him for it. So the first uh, principle of this idea of God's uh, first priority is that Jesus is the one who establishes loving God as our first priority. Here's the second thought. Jesus tells us how we should love God. Notice if we, if we look at that verse again, verse 37 says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. How do we love God? Well, first, we love him thoughtfully with my mind. We love him passionately with my heart and soul. When you put your heart and soul into something, you're giving it all that you have from the inside. And we are to love him practically with my strength. In other words, sometimes loving God isn't just simply an exercise of the mind. It involves all of who you are, all of your creativity, all of your strength, 
and all of your passion. Oswald Chambers, who wrote a number of, of spiritual thoughts about developing the spiritual side of our lives, once wrote, worship is giving God the best he has given you. I like that. That really simplifies it for me. Worship is looking at the best that God has given us and how do we give some of that back to him. He also wants you and me to love him in spirit and in truth. By the way, Jesus used a serial adulterer to teach this lesson. So in John chapter 4, Jesus met this woman from Sychar at the well of that, vi- of that city. And at one point, he says to her, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. She goes back and tells all of her neighbors that she'd met somebody who understood everything about her life and she brings them back to talk with Jesus so much so that Jesus delays his trip and stays for two more days in that city and the entire Samaritan village that she lived in was filled with people who turned their faith to Jesus and began to follow him. What matters is how and when we worship, not where we worship. We worship thoughtfully, passionately, practically with my mind, with my heart, with my soul, and with my strength, in spirit and in truth. So Jesus establishes loving God as our first priority. He tells us how we should love God. And then here's the third principle that we find from this great commandment. Worship is focusing my attention on God. Why does God want your attention? Well, when you look back in the Old Testament, we discover a whole lot about the way that God regards us. In Psalm 139, in the Common English Version, we read these verses. You have looked deep into my heart, Lord, and you know all about me. You know where I am resting or when I am working. You notice everything I do and everywhere I go. Whether you and I are are aware of it or not, your attention is an incredible expression of your love. There are times when my wife and children need my attention and even demand my attention. There are times when God wants your attention because he ultimately wants your love. Have you ever prayed when you were simply just going through the motions or showed up here in the worship center and kind of mumbled your way through things and the realization is you're really thinking about all the other troubles that you have in the rest of life and you find yourself just going through the motions? I'm not meaning to guilt trip anybody. We we all have those moments when we struggle with the thought of how we focus our attention on God. And there are times when you have stood through mindless liturgy, just kind of repeating the words, and there are times when you've stood silent through a song without singing, without even wondering what the words mean. But listen to what the Bible tells us about focusing our attention on God. This is Romans 8, chapter, uh, 8, verse 7 in the message. Focusing on yourself is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God and ends up thinking more about self than God. Romans 12, 2 in the message. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Matthew 6, 6, in the same translation. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. 
All right, why am I quoting from the message? I really think that if the Bible were to be written today, freshly, it would probably sound something like what Eugene Peterson did when he translated the entire Bible into simple today's English. If you struggle with reading the Bible, I'd really recommend that you get a copy of the message and read it in a fresh, new way. One more verse that speaks to this thought about what the Bible tells us about focusing our attention on God. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, whose thoughts are fixed on you. That's Isaiah 26.3 in the New Living Translation. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, whose thoughts are fixed in you. So here's the payoff. Here's the benefit from focusing our attention on God. He says that when we do that, he will keep us in his peace. Whoa, that's amazing. With all the turmoil going on in the world right now, with all the division, with all the bickering that's going on, he has a plan for keeping you and me in his perfect peace. And it means that we stop for a period of time thinking about ourselves and we focus on him. That is a part of worship when we focus our attention on him. Here's the fourth nugget that we learned today. Worship is expressing my affection to God. John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. An older translation of that says, we love him because he first loved us. We don't start by loving God alone as if it was our idea. We love as a response to a loving God who showers his love on us and then calls us to love him in response to what we receive. So realize this, God wants my love and he wants your love not our religious observances. In Hosea chapter 6, the prophet Hosea writes of God saying, I don't want your sacrifices, I want your love. I don't want your offerings, I want you to know me. Now it's not that God was abolishing sacrifices in the Old Testament era, it's not that God didn't want their offerings then or today. The point is he doesn't want that first, he wants it as a loving response to the God who loves us so greatly. That's what empowers whatever we do and whatever we offer to God. Now look at this next verse. God is passionate about you. How many of you men buy flowers for your wife on your anniversary and then walk up to your wife and simply say, here you go, honey, it's my duty. You would never do something like that. That would take all the joy out of it. She wants to know that if you give her a gift, you give it to her willingly and joyfully. And God doesn't enjoy us saying, okay, God, I worshiped you today. I, I showed up and I did my duty. He wants us to love him and respond to him from the heart. So here's where the Bible says that. Exodus 34, 14. This is the New Living Translation. He is a God who is passionate about his relationship with you. God is passionate about you. Can you say that right now? Because this is an extreme thought. My God is passionate about me. Would you just say that nice and loudly? My God is passionate about me. Now say it like you believe it. My God is passionate about me. I hope you're even saying that at home where you're watching today. Because here's something we need to be reminded of. Our God doesn't simply love us in a mild and meek fashion. He is passionate about you. There are gifts and there are talents and there's a personality that he has given you that is a reflection of his creativity and his glory in you. 
And you are here for a reason. You are not an accident. And what you do with your life and what I do with my life, these things matter to God because they are a reflection of how we treat the gifts that he has given us. And he is passionate about you. And I think there are all kinds of people in this world who are walking around lonely and purposeless who need to be reminded of what you and I are celebrating today, that there is a God and there is a God who is passionate about his people. Imagine how that would change the trajectory of so many people who are locked in discouragement today. He doesn't just want minimum involvement. He wants you to give yourself completely. And so Romans 6.13 tells us, Give yourselves completely to God since you have been given a new life. How much does God want your love? He wants you to love him completely. He wants to be involved in your whole life. What keeps us from doing that, from loving him completely? Probably more than anything, it's fear. You and I don't want to be seen as religious wackos and we are, we're afraid if we love God too much or too openly or too expressively that somebody else will criticize you or judge you or make fun of you. You know, that's all it takes to keep us, just one person's thought, sometimes that's all it takes to keep us from loving the almighty God who's given us everything that he is. Seems backward, doesn't it? That just one person sometimes can can tamper down the very love that God is calling from our hearts and then he fills us with. We become afraid sometimes that we'll have to be like those people who say, praise the Lord in every breath that they have. Relax. God created you and he knows your makeup and your personality and how you express your love. And what he wants is what's genuine from you, but he wants all of you. And then one more thought. We've worked through four of these so far. We've said that uh, Jesus is the one who establishes loving God as our first priority. Jesus tells us how we should love God. We've discovered that worship is focusing my attention on God and worship is expressing my affection to God. And the last principle, worship is using my abilities for God. Paul wrote in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Paul also wrote in Romans 12:1. this is in the message, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. And so Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, so we make it our goal to please him. It's not so much what you and I do that matters in life. It's who we do it for that matters. And who we do it for changes just about everything that you and I will do in the next week. A lot of people get overly hung up on trying to figure out God, God's will for their lives so that they feel like they have specific direction for each and every day, each and every decision. And God doesn't always promise that he will give us that instantaneous answer to our questions. Do what he has gifted you and equipped you to do, and you will be in that safe, safe zone. Just do it for him. You can be God's dentist or God's mechanic or God's nurse, but when you serve other people, 
in such a way that you are serving God first and you're letting him know that you're giving your best to the task of the day as unto the Lord, he receives it as worship. Start every day by offering your day, by offering your actions, by offering your energy to the goal of pleasing him. And you will find that every day is filled with purpose. Here's an example of one person who tried to do this. I would imagine that many of you know the name of Johann Sebastian Bach. He became known worldwide for his remarkable musical talent, but he never ceased to credit his creator as the one who was responsible for his ability. The pages of his musical compositions could well have been used to satisfy his personal pride as his name appeared on them and as he became noteworthy for the tremendous musical works that he created. But he was determined to give glory to God for his accomplishments. So he always concluded his original compositions with these three letters, I-N-S, which stood for the Latin words, in the name of Christ. At other times, Bach began his score with the letters J-J, which meant, Jesus, help. I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of days should start off that way. Jesus, help. I don't know how I'm going to get through this day. Jesus, help. Uh, the decisions that I have to make are, are big. Jesus, help. The load is heavy. And you and I start off so many days like that. What a great example from Johannes Sebastian Bach. And he ended his compositions with the letters SDG for the Latin phrase solo deo gloria, meaning to God be the glory. We are recipients of so much that comes to us from God. Do we proclaim that fact and turn a claim away from ourselves and give it to God? That's what the, answer, the example of Bach is moving us toward. So here's what we've learned together today. I can love God by giving him my attention, my affection, and by the way that I do my work for him. It's not just all about how we sing or how we pray. It's about how we focus on him, how we give thanks back to the God who gives us everything. I have a closing prayer, and I wonder if uh, you would say this with me. Those of you who are at home as well, just read along with us. Lord, thank you for letting me know that you are passionate about people like me. Help me to make worship my first priority in responding to you. This week, help me to focus my attention on you, to express my affection for you, and to turn my work into worship by the way I do my work for you. In Jesus' name, and to his glory, amen. We're going to celebrate communion together today, and I'd like to read to you a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, it's interesting when we read in the Scriptures about the history and the outworking of the communion service. And it, I find it fascinating that early in the Scriptures, in the, in the book of Acts and the description of the, the, the development of the very first church, People ate in their homes, and they broke bread in their homes. Some of the scholars wonder if there are two meanings for that. Breaking bread, of course, is a simple act that happens in many meals. But because it says that they were devoted to breaking bread together, 
It's thought that this was also describing how they did communion. In the days before there were church buildings, people met in homes, and this was a common practice. But something went wrong over the next 25 years or so, and we, we find Paul writing these corrective words about 25 years after the time of Jesus as he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. So he said, here's what was happening. They were gathering together for their communion services, and sometimes their divisions among the people of the church were so great that they were going from squabbling into breaking the bread and sharing the cup. And so Paul begins to give instructions. And he tells them that when they come together for the Lord's Supper, to remember that they're eating together. He tells them, don't go first and, and get uh, you know, your communion celebration all over before the rest of the crowd even arrives. And there were some who were drinking too much wine, so they're even getting drunk in a communion service, if you can imagine that. He says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? And then he begins to give these instructions. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul was arguing for creating some order to how Christians celebrate communion together. And the first idea that he had was it's something that we do together and it's something that we do with a clear heart. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to just create a moment of silence. Are you harboring some kind of bitterness towards somebody else? Has the political debate been too sharp and you're ticked off at all the people on the other side? Let's just ask God for a heart of forgiveness so that we can be examples going forward this week of the grace of Jesus that transforms everything. Lord, remove the bitterness from our hearts. Give us a love, starting for everyone else who's in the Christian family, and then for our neighbors, to all those we work with, especially to those that we may disagree with from time to time. And give us grace and peace and love and joy in Jesus' name. And then it says that they took bread and they broke it. So on the top of your little cup, if you've got one on the way in, if you just peel off the plastic part of that, the thinnest layer, you'll find a wafer there. And so the scriptures say that this reminds us of Jesus' broken body that was broken for us. And when we eat it, we are in effect symbolically taking him into us. Let's eat in the remembrance of Jesus. Lord, thank you for coming in the flesh for sacrificing your own body that we might be forgiven and that we might have life. Transform our lowly bodies 
one day into glorified bodies, but start now. We offer you what we have, and we ask that you would glorify yourself in the way that we live here and now. Thank you, in Jesus' name. And then they took the cup, and so if you peel off that next silver layer, foil layer, The cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Remission is that state where the cancers of life no longer have power over you. And so when we drink this, we are recognizing that we are covered by the shed blood of Jesus who puts our sins into remission where they no longer have power over us. Let's drink in remembrance of Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for uniting us and for reminding us as we share this bread and this cup today here in this room and in our homes and wherever people are gathered today that there is one people of God and we belong to your kingdom first. We thank you for this wonderful nation. We pray for whoever will win the election and therefore spend the next four years as president of this country. And Lord, we begin to pray even now that you will heal the divide in our nation, that somehow there will be a revival of, of spirit, a revival of faith in you that transform the way that we look at the people around us. Forgive me for any bitter words that I've said in thinking through my approach to this election season. Forgive others too. Help us to see the light that you have put in the eyes of every single human being on this, on this planet and help us to serve in Jesus' name and to turn every day's work and praise and focus into worship toward you. Thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Friends, thanks for gathering together today. This is going to be a great month as we uh, renew our understanding of God's purpose for our lives. And when we do, we will find that each day takes on more value. I hope that you will uh, continue to worship with us. We've got one more song that's a part of this morning's time. For those of you who are online, don't turn off yet. Uh, take what I've been teaching here this morning and put it into practice as we take this song and we turn it from just mere music into worship to the very God of the universe.